Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Can You Do That listeners? Allison here. This week, I am so excited for you to hear the first in an ongoing series of episodes you can expect from Can He Do That over the course of 2021. During this first year of the Biden presidency, we'll be taking time to explore some of the bigger policy challenges that his administration faces, issues that predate the pandemic and remain on the minds of many Americans. We'll tackle one of these larger structural issues at a time, sporadically throughout the year. We're calling this series Year One the issues. Here's the first episode in that series hosted by one of our show's producers, Arjun Singh. In his search to uncover a better understanding of our nation's huge amount of student loan debt and how much the president can or should do about it, Arjun talks to students, Washington Post reporters and economists, and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Here's the show. On a 60-degree day in May of 1965, Joe Biden graduated from the University of Delaware. At the time, the United States was about to ramp up its involvement in one of the worst wars of the nation's history. Lyndon B. Johnson had just won re-election, and for the small percentage of the population who attended college, the average cost of a university degree, room and board included, was less than $10,000 a year. Today, things are a little bit different. A four-year degree at a public university can cost more than double what it did when Biden went to school. And private universities are even more expensive, costing an average of $50,000 just for one year. That's nearly as much as the income of the average American household in 2020. So for many students, that huge cost means they have to resort to taking on a lot of debt to pay for their education. The average American is now exiting college with more than $30,000 of student debt, with some even taking on six-figure debt burdens before they're 25. Americans now owe more than $1.6 trillion in student debt. And as that number increases, so have the calls from advocates for the president and Congress to address the issue and reduce the debt burden. College is a right, it is not a privilege. You deserve to be educated. That's what we have to say, like, okay, where does this end? The Biden administration has already taken actions to help defrauded and disabled borrowers. We will be expanding the pause on student loan interest and collections to the more than one million borrowers who are in default on a loan that was made by a private lender. But leaders in Congress and the Democratic Party are calling on Biden to go further and eliminate up to $50,000 of student loan debt for all Americans. Whether you have the debt, have a friend who has the debt, believe it's the right thing, we're asking you, email, call, write, President Joseph Robinette Biden. But Biden says he's undecided on whether he'll go that far. Critics, meanwhile, have questioned whether the president even has the authority to forgive huge amounts of student loan debt. So, does the president have the power to unilaterally cancel student debt? Would a policy of loan cancellation actually improve economic mobility, as its advocates say, and help Americans who are struggling? This is Kenny Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Arjun Singh. 
my parents didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a college fund for me. And so it was one of those things where like, you know, if you can get a scholarship, that would be ideal because otherwise it's going to be loans. That's Jen um, Prince, the PR manager at the Memphis Music Initiative. She's also an old classmate of mine. We first met more than a decade ago in college in Boston. So when I first started reporting on this episode, I thought back to some of the conversations I had with Jen about her student loans back then. And since graduating, she's lived in Los Angeles and now Tennessee. I could have gone to college in my home state, which is Arkansas, for free from academics and grants and other things like that. But that's not the, those are not the colleges I wanted to go to for what I wanted to pursue as my career. So when I realized that I needed to go out of state to have the kind of college experience, both culturally and academically, that I wanted, I knew that I would have to take on student loans. And I was more than happy, especially at the age of 17, 18, I was more than happy to sign on the dotted line for those just to have that college experience that I thought I needed. Jen graduated from college nearly eight years ago and today still has tens of thousands of dollars of student debt, something she told me touches nearly every part of her life. I asked her how she thinks about the decisions she made when she was in high school to take out student loans. So I knew that down the road it would probably, you know, not be the most fun thing to have to do and remember every month. But I also thought that it would be worth it. So how did that sort of shape how you perceive the experience you got to have at college knowing you took out all of this debt to get there? I would say that I don't know that it was worth the exorbitant cost of tuition where I went academically. I think I learned a lot of my trade in jobs that I had after college. I don't think it was worth it from that perspective. But, you know, I do think it was worth it from a cultural perspective. And it's a great opportunity to figure out who you are and how you interact and relate to people. And, you know, it helps you form your ideas about the world more broadly in an environment of your peers and away from your family and the experiences that you've already had. So I think it's really valuable in that context. I also think that people still expect you to have a college degree. So while it may not always be worth the cost academically, what else are you going to do, really, at the end of the day? That's the situation we're in. When you began thinking about college and taking out student loans, did college feel like a necessary next step after high school graduation? I think it was pitched to me in a way that probably a lot of high schoolers, maybe people are a little more disillusioned now, but definitely then I think everybody had, or a lot of my peers had this idea of, and it was just accepted that you were going to go to college, which A, I don't think everybody should, everybody doesn't want to, and not everybody needs to, but it was sort of like understood that yes, you will go to college where you go is, and what you do there is kind of up to you, but like if you want to have a good life, you will have to go to college and graduate college. So I was just like, how could that not lead to some kind of better opportunities than what I see around me here in Arkansas, which I'm from a really small town, like 10,000 people in the middle of southern Arkansas. And so to me, it just felt like there was no way it could be worse. Jen graduated from college in 2013. In the 10 years between 2009 and 2019, college costs at public and private schools went up more than 25%. And those costs rose against a backdrop of shrinking job opportunities for people whose highest level of education was high school. 
According to research by the Center on Education and the Workforce at Georgetown University, job opportunities for college graduates doubled between 1991 and 2016, but they significantly shrank for those with only a high school diploma. And in the same study, researchers found that in 2016, 74% of college degree holders earned at least $35,000 a year, while only 38% of non-degree holders earned that much. So why has this happened? Why have college costs increased so much? And how did the United States end up in a position where Americans hold almost $1.7 trillion of student debt? To find out, I turned to someone in the Washington Post newsroom who knows a lot about this. Danielle Douglas Gabriel is a reporter for the Post focused on the economics of higher education. I asked Danielle about the origins of the student loan crisis today and why 43 million Americans wound up collectively holding so much student debt. Certainly after the Great Recession in 2010, we saw a lot of people going to college. And these weren't just folks who were fresh out of high school. There are a lot of Americans who are returning to college in order to sharpen their skills and make themselves more marketable in the job market. And as a result, we started to see people taking on debt to do so. Now, this was happening at a time where state investment in higher education, state appropriations for public institutions were certainly not what they were a generation ago. And even at this stage, before this most recent recession, uh, state investment in public higher ed still had not come back to pre-recessionary levels in many states. So you're seeing states cutting the amount of money that they're providing, and as a result, schools are raising tuition to make up the difference, oftentimes. It's not just increases in tuition and an influx of students that have contributed to the rise of student debt. It's also the shortcomings of federal programs designed to help lower-income students. There are just hasn't been enough grant funding for a lot of students who could use it. The federal government's largest grant program is the Pell Grant, which is for lower income students, typically people whose families make under $60,000. Now, whereas the Pell Grant would cover 75% of the cost of education in the 70s and 80s, right now it is barely covering a quarter. And, you know, there is a good potential that if you go to a community college, a lot of your costs could be covered, at least tuition. But even there, living costs, housing, even if you're living at home, a lot of students I speak to, their parents expect them to contribute to the household. They can't just kind of freeload there while they're taking classes. They are working. A lot of the students I speak with, they're working full time while they're trying to get their education. And the socioeconomic circumstances of students who seek out college now have changed over the past decade or so. We've also seen a huge influx of lower income students, students who do not have the wealth in order to tap to pay for their education. And so they are borrowing more. And as they're doing this, when they fall into uh, trouble making up those payments, they're more likely to become delinquent, more likely to default because there is no mom and dad safety net to help them out in these instances. All of these factors have contributed to a movement from the left towards mass debt cancellation. You really saw the issue take off when the economy crashed as a result of the pandemic. Around that time, maybe about a year ago exactly, leading voices within the Democratic Party, including Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren really was pushing this, Ayanna Pressley were saying, hey, let us try to forgive at least 10,000 at the time in order to serve as an economic stimulus. We know that there are 45 million Americans 
Americans with this debt. And I'm sure not having that bill would be an added help in order to stimulate the economy. Now, as the pandemic wore on and the recession wore on, that mount started to turn towards 50,000. 50,000 in particular would wipe away the debt of nearly 80% of people who have student loans. So that's why that figure seemed to make the most sense. Biden, though, didn't promise to cancel $50,000 in student debt during his 2020 campaign. Candidate Joe Biden had ran on a promise of $10,000 worth of forgiveness as economic stimulus and relief, as well as other student loan forgiveness promises kind of geared towards people in the public sector cleaning up a program that already exists for them to receive student loan forgiveness, as well as kind of broadening some of the other debt forgiveness ones. Biden has responded to those calls less with resistance to the number itself and more with another concern. He questions whether the president has authority to forgive student debt unilaterally. So now, the Secretary of Education is working with the Justice Department to prepare a memo on whether Biden has the legal authority to cancel student debt. The White House has said Biden will decide how to proceed once the findings of that report come in. But that hasn't stopped momentum on the issue among Democrats. Among the Democratic leaders out front on this is Senator Elizabeth Warren. People who took out student loan debt because they were trying to do their best, they were trying to get an education, and who, through one move or another, are now caught in a debt nightmare. We are calling on President Joe Biden to end that nightmare. We are calling on him for justice. I am so glad to be here today. During the 2020 presidential primaries, Warren was known for her slate of policy proposals, and one of them was canceling $50,000 of student debt per person. According to Warren, the president, and more specifically the Secretary of Education, could cancel debt due to powers granted to the department by the Higher Education Act of 1965, the same law that gives the federal government the ability to make loans to college students. And she's using that basis to put pressure on Biden. So I sat down with her to ask why she wants the president to go big on canceling student debt. I think one of the main jobs of government is to help create opportunity, to help build the infrastructure so that everybody gets a chance. I think that's what a democracy is about. I think that's what an economy should be for. Student loan debt started out actually with a pretty benign intent, giving a little boost to people who were trying to finish their education post high school. But it has turned around into something else. Now it's 43 million Americans trying to shoulder a trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt, and it is literally crushing people. It's narrowing opportunity, it's shrinking opportunity, and it's not only doing it for the families that are directly affected, it's doing it for our whole darn economy. So the data are starting to show that, that people with student loan debt can't buy houses, uh, they don't move out of mom's house, they don't start small businesses because you, know, you can decide you wanna live on ramen noodles and you know, have seven roommates to start your small business and that's great. But if you gotta make a student loan, debt payment every month. That's just out of reach for you. Those things have an impact on our whole economy. So I don't want to be an America that's about shrinking opportunity. I want to be about an America that's about expanding opportunity. So let's cancel a big chunk of that student loan debt. And then 
Let's put down the resources so people can get technical school, two-year college, four-year college, tuition-free. And so you've called on President Biden to cancel up to $50,000 student loan debt. You introduced that idea during your presidential campaign. What kind of economic impact do you think that could immediately have if it was implemented the way that you had proposed it, to cancel $50,000 of debt? It would be a fabulous stimulus for the economy because the folks who are shouldering student loan debt will spend that money. These are not folks who are going to say, oh, great, I'll put this into savings for some point in the future. These are folks who are going to put that money back into the economy. And they're going to put it into the economy, I believe, there's a lot of data that show, in very creative ways, like starting their own small businesses. You know, I, I sometimes think about what this mounting student loan debt problem has done. How many small businesses didn't get started? How many great ideas that somebody had never got launched because they said, no, I got to stay where I get a paycheck every week because I've got to manage my student loan debt problem. So I think it's a, the immediate effect would be a big boost to the economy. The other thing I should mention, it also I think is intergenerationally important. You know, when I hit college age, I grew up in an America that said, you want to go on to school, kid, here's a four-year university. You can go for $50 a semester because the taxpayer was supporting those state schools at that level. Today, that opportunity is just not there. And we've watched one generation graduate into the 2008 economic crisis. The data show that's going to affect their lifetime earnings and now another wave graduating into another depressed economy. This is a way to say, let's relieve some of that debt burden and let you get a real start in life. You spent a lot of time in higher education. From your perspective within, what has been contributing to this? Is it that college has always been expensive and now more people are trying to access it? Has the cost of running a university increased? What is it about this moment in time that college has become such a difficult opportunity for so many people? Well, one of the main ones is taxpayer support. You know, there was a time when taxpayers were picking up roughly three out of four dollars for what it costs to produce that college education. Today, the taxpayers roughly are picking up about one out of four dollars. Well, somebody's got to pick up the rest of that. And that's been shifted over to the families. And the colleges could do that, and the states could do that in terms of withdrawing support and still have people show up at their doors because federal student loans were there. So, you know, the, the pieces are all related to each other. My view on this is back at the turn of the last century, turn of the 20th century, in effect, as a nation, we understood that an increasingly industrialized country needed people to have more education and that simply being able to put an X on a piece of paper, it just wasn't going to work. And so what did we do? We did two things. We made high school free and we made it mandatory as a way to create more opportunity. And that's exactly what it did. So people could now read instructions, they could read safety standards, they could read a lease. And that boosted our whole economy, it boosted our whole nation. Here we are 100 years later, and around 90% of the new jobs that are being created 
require college diploma. And what we're saying to young people is you're on your own. Good luck to you. Go out there and find a way to pay for it. Take out for some of them the equivalent of one full mortgage before you ever are going to get graduated from college and start your adult life. That's not how we help young people build opportunity, nor is it how we build a vibrant economy going forward. And it seems like there are a lot of people, particularly within the Democratic Party, that would agree with everything that you said. And yet you do see this pushback. You had President Biden saying he didn't want to go as far as $50,000. He wanted to go with a smaller amount. And you have others sort of pushing back against it. And I guess I'm wondering, is this a political issue? Is there still people who are unsure of whether this will have an economic benefit? I think the other element that is beginning to advance here is it's becoming a more overtly racial justice issue. We know that African-American students have to borrow more money to go to school, have to borrow more money while they're in school, and have a harder time paying it back when they get out of school. We know that that is true uh, also for Latinx students. So think of it this way. If you just want to kind of turn this a little bit, there's a huge black-white wealth gap, Latino-white wealth gap in America. With the stroke of a pen, President Biden could close the black-white wealth gap for those with student loan debt by 25 points by canceling $50,000 of student loan debt. Do the same thing for the Latino wealth gap. Just think about what that means. So the way I see this is to say, I think that more people in the Democratic Party are just starting to absorb both the numbers and the stories. I think there are a lot of folks in the Democratic Party, frankly, who are my age and think you didn't have to take on that student loan debt because you know what? You didn't have to, you know, way back when, because college was much more affordable. I think there are a lot of folks whose own parents could afford to write a check for them to go to college, and they just, they don't see what it means that young people are caught in this trap. They're told you got to have that college diploma as your ticket to the middle class, not even a guarantee, but just your chance to get on the train. And at the same time, the cost barrier is just sky high. And that, again, it's not what we should be doing as a nation. And by golly, Democrats who are supposed to be the party of opportunity for everyone, we need to be the party that says this whole system has to be changed. Knock out a big chunk of the student loan debt and let's get Let's get college where everybody can afford to go without going into debt. And I know on your campaign, you've spoken to a lot of young people about this issue. What do you hear from them and what kind of a message does it seem like it is sending when they see people resisting and making some of those arguments that when I was in college, I paid for it or I got a high paying job and you can't do it too. What is that impact having on a generation that's about to take over the reins of government? You know, we persuaded young people to show up in the 2020 election. And let's face it, if they hadn't, 
we wouldn't have a Democratic majority in the Senate, and I don't think we'd have a Democrat in the White House. Young people turned out because we made the argument that it is possible to make government work for you. This is the most tangible evidence we could give of that. This would be delivering on our basic promise, whether as a politician, someone ran specifically on student loan debt or not. If they ran as a Democrat, they ran on the basic idea that we're here to help build opportunity, not just for a handful of people, but to build opportunity for everyone. This would be the best possible demonstration that we are delivering on that fundamental promise that we made. And if we fail to do that, shame on us. Have you been working with the White House or has President Biden reached out to you on this issue? So Senator Schumer and I have spoken uh, directly with President Biden. We've had good conversations about this. And I should say, Senator Schumer is all in on canceling $50,000 of student loan debt. I could not ask for a more enthusiastic partner, except maybe Ayanna Presley, who is also so totally in on this and so good and so articulate and argues this from the heart. So we're talking with the White House. We'll keep doing that. And I got to say, I'm optimistic. It's the right thing to do. And like I said earlier, you don't get what you don't fight for. So we're going to fight for this. But it's something the president can do. We lift our voices. We make clear that we want the president to do it. I think we can get this done. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Senator Warren and others have argued that student loan debt is not just an economic issue, but a moral one, and that mass cancellation of student debt would be one step towards creating more equity within the U.S. But economist Sandy Baum, a non-resident senior fellow at the Urban Institute, isn't so sure that a policy of mass cancellation would really help those who are economically vulnerable. I asked Sandy who would stand to gain under Senator Warren's plan. Well, about a third of borrowers owe less than $10,000. And among that group are most of the people for whom education really didn't pay off, who are really struggling, they don't have a good job, they weren't in college for a long time. So for them, if you forgave $10,000 in student debt, you would solve their problem. There's people who owe more than $30,000, and the average for a bachelor's degree recipient is $30,000. Most of them were in college for a long time and are actually doing pretty well. The large amounts of debt forgiveness just would throw lots of money at people who went to graduate school. I mean, it's really startling to think how many people who clearly are not by any means the worst off people in society would receive that benefit. But the real issue is, like, if you think about how many people are struggling now with the pandemic and job losses and so on, if we sent every household $10,000, that would really help a lot of people. Maybe that would be a really good idea. But what this proposal says is, okay, we think people are struggling. We're going to send a lot of households $10,000. But if you didn't go to college, you don't get any of this money. And 
If you think of it that way, those people with the lowest incomes, those people who are most vulnerable, they don't get any of this handout. Why is that? So it's not really picking the people who are struggling the most by any means if you decide to blanket forgive student debt. And I think people don't think of it as if you borrowed $20,000, we actually gave you $20,000 and you spent it and you said you would pay it back. And not everybody can pay it back. And we certainly need an insurance program. So if you can't pay it back, you don't have to. But, you know, if you borrowed money for a car, it's really painful to make the payments. You don't want to make the payments. You'd be much better off if somebody else bought the car for you, right? But you have that car. And I think it's very hard for people to see their education in the same way. Whatever job they have, they just have it. That's their job. And it's hard for them to see the direct connection. So then you're suggesting that the people who have the most debt might not be the most vulnerable members of society. Who holds the majority of student debt in the United States? Well, the first thing is that all those people who never went to college don't have student debt unless they paid for their kids to go to college. So many of the people who are struggling the most, particularly during the pandemic, are people who didn't go to college and don't have student debt. Among the people with student debt, about a third of those people holding student debt owe less than $10,000. So it's a lot of people, but they have small debts. They actually are the people who struggle the most with student debt because most of them went to college for a very short period of time. They may have gone and dropped out or they got a very short-term certificate uh, and they don't have high earnings. So those small debts cause people problems. But the people with large debts, you have actually just a small number of people who owe a lot. So for example, if you go to graduate school, you can borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you only get an undergraduate education, you can't borrow more than $60,000. So you have a very small share of the borrowers who owe a high share of the money. So you have a few borrowers who owe $100,000 or more or $80,000 or more, and they owe a large share of the debt. About 40% of the debt is held by people who borrowed for graduate school. So people have this image of, you know, young people just out of college, but actually people who went to graduate school account for a very large share of the debt. And not everybody who went to graduate school makes a lot of money, but certainly people with graduate degrees make much more than people who don't have graduate degrees, certainly much more than the average taxpayer. When you see the debates that are happening right now, what do you think we should be paying attention to? Where should we be focused when we talk about student loan debt? I think we should think first about which borrowers are really facing burdens that are unfair or just really unbearable. So for example, if you went to a school that closed while you were there or that promised you something that it certainly couldn't offer, those people, we should forgive their debts. There are parents who borrow from the federal government to send their kids to college. How many of them are below the poverty line when we make those loans to them? They are not going to be able to pay back those loans. So we should be thinking about who are those groups of borrowers, and we should do something about that. But if you think broadly about student debt and you think about the hardships that people are facing, it's really hard to argue that the people with student debt typically are facing greater hardships than people with medical debt or utilities debt or people who don't have any debt but are homeless. Or There are lots of problems in society to solve. And it's interesting that student debt has somehow risen to the top, partly because there are examples of people for whom it really is oppressive and we really need to do something about that. 
but largely I think because um, of the political strength of the population that has student debt. After talking to all of these people, there was one piece of the puzzle that was missing for me in the student debt conversation, and that's the role of colleges and universities. I turned back to Danielle one last time to find out where the responsibility of higher education institutions fits into all of this. There is kind of public attention around how much people are borrowing and how much they owe. A lot more schools are saying we are trying our best to come up with better scholarship plans, trying to figure out ways in order to deliver education in a less expensive way. That's not necessarily easy, but in part, some of this is going to be dictated by the market. You know, a lot of schools saw a decline in enrollment during the pandemic, and some of them were kind of offering like crazy car deals almost. It felt like, like if you come here, you can get the first half of tuition off or, you know, and these are smaller schools, so it's very much on the margins. But still, I do wonder if we continue to see a decline in enrollment, that'll be enough market pressure for schools to try to hold the line on their costs, on their tuition and housing. But that's difficult, right? So tuition and those expenses pay for salaries, pay for professors. And there does have to be a bit of a reckoning within higher education to think about whether this model is really serving students. You know, if, if students are having to get these credentials because this is what the labor market says is necessary for entry, that's that's one thing. But if these schools are charging them more than they'll ever make in the first five years of their career, there has to be a question and a discussion about the disconnect there and how do you address that without sacrificing the quality of education. This has been a special episode of Can He Do That in our series about the big issues Biden might have to contend with in his first year in office. Listen for more episodes in this series throughout 2021. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Arjun Singh. This episode of Can He Do That was produced by me, Arjun Singh, with editing by Allison Michaels, logo art from Greg Manifold, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. 